Hi, everyone. This is Dave Newbert, Marketing Director for Eagle Eye Power Solutions, and welcome to our podcast, DC Power Hour, the show where we will discuss everything related to, you guessed it, critical DC power solutions. So charge up, power on, or do whatever it takes to get yourself excited for the episode of DC Power Hour. Here we are back for another episode of DC Power Hour. Today, we're going to talk about equipment redundancy, something I know very little about, but fortunately, our battery blarney duo of George and Alan do. How's it going, guys? Welcome back. It's going great. Wonderful day in the neighborhood here. Awesome. Well, let's talk about equipment redundancy. Let's get right into it. What is it? Why is it important? And uh, why don't you guys tell us about some of the applications that it pertains to? Who's who's going to start? Alan, you want to take over? Oh, why not? Like George, I come from a, basically a telecom background, wet my teeth on telecom power systems. And one of the features of them was redundancy. Basically, it wasn't full redundancy. It was mainly redundant chargers, probably not even redundant batteries at the time because they operated off large ventilated acid cells, wet cells. In a lot of cases, there wasn't enough room to put in a redundant battery. Telecom was a different animal because uh, their batteries were usually sized for four hours reserve plus. You know, they figured, you know, they could replace a charger within four hours while they had redundant chargers. Or if they had a, a battery problem, they could jump out a cell and take care of it. As the industry evolved, UPS to start coming on the market. Well, first of all, there was customer premise telecom. A customer premise telecom was coming after 1983 when uh, it was declared that AT&T was no longer a monopoly. So there was a lot of private companies started up, MCI being one, uh, Rome Telecom being another. And when they were installing systems, they didn't have the same reliability focus that the traditional Dell operating companies had. So they started cutting corners. And the first thing they said was, well, do we really need two chargers? Do we really need two batteries? That started happening. And then they got wise because they realized that the power outages was there. They were losing customers. They were losing revenues. They had to rethink the system. And then the UPS folks are the Data processing moved out of the uh, large mainframe computer systems into the customer premise. And the same thing happened there. We're going to put in a, a large uh, UPS here. We don't, don't need to spend money on sophisticated battery charges. We don't need to spend money on uh, redundant batteries. Let's do it as cheap as possible. And that kind of backfired on them. And we'll talk later about my views and some of that. But uh, I'd like to hand over to George. So George can tell us about uh, something we're both involved in, and that's the utility industry. As you said, Alan, you and I have a primarily a, a telecom background. And then prior to my retirement, I was heavily involved in uh, the data center industry in, from a standby power aspect. Now I'm, uh, as you said, we're, we're now totally committed to the utility industry. And on my first visit to a substation, I, to say I was shocked was um, probably an understatement because I suddenly discovered that there was this substation that was controlling quite a large area of power for people in that area, and it had a single battery and a single charger, and that was it. Absolutely no redundancy. In some cases, very limited protected distribution. But, uh, that was one of the problems on some of the sites. In fact, they were very reminiscent of some of the earlier um, telecom installations where two copper bars on the wall and a lot of cables was the distribution method. Today, within the utility industry, there is a recognition that redundancy is 
an essential part of maintaining our electrical supply. So there are numerous new standards being produced that uh, basically require them to uh, remove what's often referred to as a single point of failure. And they've now recognized in the latest version of a standard called TPL001-5 release of it, they actually identify the single battery, single charger as a key single point of failure and come up with a number of uh, suggestions as to how that can be overcome. They're starting to take it, but we have a lot of substations in this country and it's going to take a long time to uh, get them all up to speed and, and meet the requirements of the new standard. Yes, George, and uh, let's get back to the title of this podcast. That's redundancy. Uh, in my opinion, if you don't have a redundant system, uh, whether you're in telecom, data processing, utilities, or, or whatever, if you don't have a redundant system, you're stupid. Why do I say that? Because things go wrong. And it was interesting to read uh, last month the survey that came out from one of the more reputable agencies. They said that power failures was the biggest single cause of interruptions in the data processing industry. Uh, not only that, but they, uh, have, I have the figure here in front of me. Between 1920, 1920, it was 37% of all failures were due to power-related issues. That has increased to today to 43%. A lot of these things could have been avoided with redundancy. Now, when we talk about redundancy, I don't just mean redundant chargers or redundant batteries. Typical UPS backing up a large data center or even a small data center, it has a single charger in the UPS. That charger is not very well regulated. What I'm trying to say is that when you talk about redundancy, you're not just talking about a redundant charger. You're not just talking about a redundant battery. You've got to look at the whole system. Now, to me, a truly redundant system it would have separate utility fees uh, to the location. It would have separate utility fees, mains fees to the chargers. It would have uh, separate distribution paths from the chargers to the load. You know, it's what we call an A and a B path. There'd be several other things that would be uh, made redundant, but this is not happening. The reason, well, it's starting to happen, but the reason it didn't happen is because. Uh, We've heard the expression that the power system wasn't a revenue generator. You soon got the retention when there was a power failure. When we talk about redundancy, we're not just talking about chargers and batteries. We're talking about overall uh, design of the system. You are 100% right. I hate saying that. The whole point about it is, is that quite often the uh, standby power system is designed independently of the loads it's going to support. If you're going to do it properly, you really need to understand how the loads themselves, where that redundancy within that part of the system is built in. For instance, you can have, in some places, they will put duplicate equipment in there to provide redundancy. But that's not the most common because that's the extremely expensive way to do it. A lot of the data center equipment, a lot of the data communications equipment is built with two power supplies in it so that at least you can supply power from two different sources, but they're paralleled inside and there actually is no redundancy within that piece of equipment. A lot of that is covered sometimes by the ability within the data center to switch loads and switch uh, switch traffic. Unless you understand how the redundancy works all the way from beginning to end, you're not actually going to design something properly. And the other problem they have is that, as you rightly said, yeah, a lot of the uh, UPS, the very large UPS systems, often have four or five battery cabinets. And people are under the impression 
that if I lose one of the cabinets, it, it's, it's not that important. Well, it depends what the load is on the system. If the load the system is practically fully loaded, then you are going to lose a lot of time by even losing one cabinet because the average person does not realize the uh, these very short durations on a data center, the loss of efficiency really comes into play. I've seen people say to me, oh, I have a 15-minute battery and I've got two battery cabinets, so if I lose one, I've still got seven and a half minutes. The answer is no, they'll be lucky if they go for about two minutes under full load, you know, because of the change in efficiency. Redundancy is, as you said, is a difficult thing to design and match. It takes a lot more care and attention than one would think. George had on a point there. In telecom and utilities, usually the battery plants are sized for typically four hours reserve, sometimes eight hours reserve depending on the facility. And that's good because when you're planning your redundant battery, the battery size for eight hours reserve, do I need to put two eight-hour batteries in there? Uh, Not really. Maybe put two batteries that are sized uh, for five hours each because the discharge time, as George rightly said, is is not linear over the uh, discharge time. Maybe I can put two four-hour batteries in there in parallel which would give me eight hours redundancy. And if I have to work on a battery or I lose a battery string for some reason, and believe you me, this is going to happen, folks, you're going to lose a battery string. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. You can probably get away with two four-hour batteries. Uh, In the UPS world, apologize for hitting on the UPS world. I I did work for a UPS manufacturer for several years. Nearly got fired several times because of being vocal about what they were doing with respect to battery reserve times. 15 minutes used to be pretty standard. Then they started bringing it down. Maybe we can get away with 10 minutes. Maybe we can get away with five minutes. Specifications for the battery system, a lot of times were very loose. I once plowed my way through a 100-odd page. I think it was 153 pages. RFQ for a UPS power backup system. There was one paragraph concerning the batteries, and that said the, the battery shall be sized for 15 minutes, and the battery shall be sealed maintenance-free. That was it, folks. Uh, with UPS reserve times 15 minutes or less, when you put in a redundant battery, you can't really size it, as George mentioned, for seven and a half minutes each battery string because it just doesn't work out that way. You, you better be putting in the redundant battery or redundant batteries for the whole planned battery backup uh, time. main reason that the redundancy or the, uh, shall I say, the battery backup times different in the telecom and the UPS industry is that in telecom, the, the game plan was to keep the system up as long as possible for various reasons, not only from providing 911 service, to, but also to uh, this revenue earning. With the UPS industry when it first started, or the data processing industry, the function of the UPS was to keep the system up as long as it took to perform an orderly shutdown. And they said, well, that's probably going to be about 15 minutes. Or we've got an engine generator on the system, That'll give us time for a couple of restarts and what have you. It depends what industry and when you talk about redundancy, what you're going to achieve. Part of the things that comes into redundancy is serviceability. How quick can you get the system back up again? A lot of times that's how redundant, how resilient is my system. Maybe George can talk about something, uh, some of the things the utility industries are doing to make their systems more resilient. Not just the utility, but uh, I want to come back to the, the data center part where you're talking about it in the fact that one of the reasons it's often quoted for reducing the battery runtime is because the uh, 
they say they have a generator that starts within uh, and is up and running at full uh, full capacity within two minutes. The only trouble is that they've forgotten it's one generator, and that generator requires a battery to start it, and that battery is charged by one charger on the wall. So, in fact, there's absolutely no redundancy in their defined backup. And what's the main reason why most generators don't start? Battery failure. But, yeah, within the, when you start looking at uh, redundancy within the utilities, one of the challenges has been, quite honestly, in almost all the buildings, there simply isn't enough space to add another battery because a 120-volt battery is quite large. You can, one of the, uh, within that standard I talked about, TPL001-5, they have provided a, a slight out to the utilities by saying that as long as the battery continuity and the charging voltage is being monitored, you can, in fact, stay with a single battery. On the charger side, my one of my concerns always has been is that single chargers tend to be large and heavy and are typically mounted on walls because there isn't a lot of floor space. There's maybe some people listening to this podcast will have horrible memories of trying to uh, change one of them out. When you and I started, it wasn't a case of changing it out. Was we, uh, we used to go and fix it. That doesn't exist any longer. You don't fix it on site, you replace it. And to me, that the only satisfactory way to do that is that the utilities are going to have to move over to the approach that telecom took many, many years ago with modular chargers, high-frequency modular chargers, which are much smaller, much easier. You don't need any training to replace one, and it's very easy to have a much smaller backup redundant charger, so they're, they're cheaper, not the, the cost of the very large ones. Like everything else, it will take a long time to uh, move companies in that direction. Yeah, one of the problems with the utility industry, and I love the utility industry, is that they're, they're very slow to change. They built the whole backbone probably on uh, SCR chargers. They didn't like the controlled ferros, so the SCR chargers were tried and true, very, very reliable. They didn't really want to change something that worked. The other thing about the utility industries is that they wisely, very wisely, said we're, we're going to use uh, vented lead-acid batteries. We're going to use flooded batteries. We're not even going to consider the uh, new kids on the block, which at the time was valve-regulated lead-acid batteries, so-called, I say, sealed maintenance-free batteries. So they had a little bit more reliability going in there just because of their battery choice. You're right, George. They have to consider changing to modular redundant charger systems. It was a telecom industry, probably has more oversight than a lot of the other industries because of the Federal Communication Commission. But they also have a lot more research and development available, what used to be Bellcorp. They were the first to adopt the switch mode rectifiers. And the switch mode rectifiers are the basis of the modern redundant charger systems. Now, one of the problems was the switch mode rectifiers, or most of the switch mode rectifiers, is that they were fan-cooled. They had to have a fan to blow air across the electronics to cool it. But utility industry didn't. Didn't like this. A lot of other people didn't like it because it meant there was a single point of failure within the rectifier itself, and that was the fan. That was not only the single point of failure, but it was the most common failure. What they were people were looking for was a, a convection cool switch mode rectifier, and we have those on the market today. So you can have a convection cool switch mode rectifier in a chassis uh, with maybe slots up from four to eight rectifier positions. And you've got a 
redundant rectifier system. To me, that was one of the uh, key points in getting some of the uh, utility industry. We're not talking about just electrical utility. We're talking oil, gas, pipeline, all that, uh, those kind of utilities. The convection code switch mode rectifier, in my opinion, should be the changing point for them. So I don't know what you think about that, George. As you know, I was um, at one point in my career, I was quite heavily involved in uh, switch mode rectifiers back in the UK. The company I was working for at that time, they had built some of the early switch mode units for British Telecom, which was probably a leader in the, in the concept of switch mode uh, chargers. But interesting enough, those initial ones were, in fact, all convection cooled. They were somewhat larger than the uh, units we're talking about today, but they were convection cooled. So you can, in fact, design switch mode at quite high power levels uh, as long as you're willing to do the design correctly and understand all the aspects of it. There's no doubt about it that uh, convection cooled design is a lot harder than uh, if you just put a bigger fan in to cool it down, which is typically what happens with some of the, the, the smaller switch mode designs. Uh, one, the, but the other point that happened there is that the actual uh, mean time between failure of fans has increased rapidly. And this is this is all part, that has to be part of any design or redundancy design. You have to look at what are the, the key points of failure, even within the equipment you're using. What is the mean time between failure of the of the equipment? As we talked about trying to change out uh, wall-mounted uh, rectifiers, the mean time to repair. Because when, you, when you're talking about batteries, for instance, you've got to remember if you've lost the charging ability to charge them, uh, you've only got the uh, runtime of the battery. That's all you've got before you have complete failure. You have to consider how you can replace and, and what steps you can take to ensure that you can uh, continue to support that load that typically with the thought process would be a redundant battery. But as I said, in many cases, you simply can't add that redundant battery. I think you, you summed it up at the, the, the very start, Alan, was when you said that people just people don't actually understand all aspects of redundancy. The, the first thought is, well, I'll just put two of something in. That doesn't necessarily give you the level of redundancy you're looking for. You have to understand how the whole interaction is. Did you agree? Once again, I find myself agreeing with you, George. And one thing we haven't talked about, and let's talk about it briefly, is cost. I mentioned that that some of the uh, specifications were written around, certainly not reliability, they were written around cost. Our old friends, the financial engineers, come into the picture. You've got to look at the true cost. What revenue are, am I losing? Also, when you think about cost, is cost to maintain, cost to repair. So there's a lot of related things that haven't taken into consideration. A lot of people look upon the power system as not being a revenue earner, so therefore it doesn't get doesn't get a lot of attention. It's kind of the Rodney Dangerfield of the uh, backup power industry. It doesn't get any respect. But price is related to something else. Cost is related to something else, and we've seen this via NERC. Uh, we've seen this by some other regulated bodies. You almost have to force people into putting in redundant systems. Because they're not going to do it. The financial engineers are not going to do it unless they're made to do it. And NERC PRC005 is a typical example of this. They, we're not talking about redundancy, but they made them do certain things. Uh, the same with the telecom industry. They have the federal communication system hovering over them, and they make them do things the right way. I don't think the UPS industry 
well, and a couple of UL documents, I don't think they have the same oversight that drives them into complying. They're saying, we don't have to do this. You know, when the government tells you you have to do this, then it gets a lot of attention. You're right about costs. And, and, and one, of the, one of the problems is, is that the, the power system is not a revenue earner. The majority of people don't understand it. Whereas what you need to be looking at is what is the cost of failure? How much are you going to lose if you lose this service you're using? Now, that could be communications, it could be a, a, an in-house data center, it could be you're using the cloud and you no longer have communications, you've lost your complete communication system. How much money are you losing at that point in time? There's been quite a few spectacular uh, cases of it. Is that I think the one that always comes to mind is a few years ago, on a Saturday morning, just outside London, a technician was sent to do the maintenance on the UPS system that supported the British Airways primary data centre. Unfortunately, that poor technician was not really experienced in the UPS he went to do the maintenance on, and he got the shutdown procedure wrong and dropped the data centre. And for reasons that nobody's ever been able to explain, apparently the backup data centre some 10, 15 miles away, which was supposed to be the redundancy, also failed, not necessarily for power, but it went down, it, it, it collapsed. It took British Airways three days to recover and get their flights out. They stopped business at the moment that data center dropped. This was a Saturday morning at the height of the British summer with the airport packed with people wanting to go on their once yearly vacation. The amount of revenue they lost, not just the revenue they lost, but the amount of... Um, faith people had in flying British Airways was was disastrous for them for a period. Nobody wanted to fly with them because they couldn't be trusted. But how much did that cost them? A lot more than making sure that they had a maintenance contract that ensured that the person that went there knew what they were doing. Because we took, we talk about, you know, you, you quoted a couple of studies there where you said that uh, the power was the key point of failure. The second one, regrettably, is human failure, human intervention, and not done properly. We talk about it as redundancy, but in the end, we're talking about reliability, or as the data center world think about it, availability. When you talked about uh, human redundancy, George, I chuckle. I just imagined uh, people now having to send two technicians to site to perform a procedure. Uh, when I think about it, if you've ever flown or in, in, in the front seats, front seat of an aircraft. Uh, as we probably both have, George, up with the uh, pilot, the procedure they have, the checklist, is quite impressive. You have the co-pilot or the pilot, uh, one of them reading out the checklist and the other going through the system. That's the way it should be with shutting down a UPS system, I believe. you got to do it, folks. I hate telling you, but if, if you don't have a redundant power system installed, you're stupid. Make sure that uh, that power system gets some respect, just like Rodney Dangerfield. He doesn't get any respect, but give it some respect. I'm sure some of our overseas listeners are listening to this and saying, Rodney Dangerfield, is he an electronic spoof? Is he uh, one of the development of some of these power systems? Uh, maybe he is. I don't know. Maybe there's a Rodney Dangerfield out there somewhere. Today, we also have the extreme privilege of interviewing a true industry expert, engineering technical consultant from Dominion Energy, Dennis Martini. 
to interview Dennis. We're going to bring in our industry expert, George Peterson, so they can talk a little shop about equipment redundancy in DC substation systems. Take it away, George. Thank you. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Dennis. It's uh, been a long time since you and I have spoken, but I think we're we're all aware that redundancy has now become more and more important as a result of COVID. A great deal of concern about people losing power or people losing communications. I, in fact, had that part of this week when doing an online training course. I lost the internet for about three minutes, which caused a little bit of panic. I'm very understanding about the need for redundancy. My surprise has been is that when I first got involved with the utilities was the lack of redundancy within a uh, within a substation. So the majority of the substations appear to be a single charger and single string of batteries, which is not my experience coming from the telecommunications side. Have you any background to that and explain the thought process behind it? George, it's good to talk with you again as well. Good to see you, even though it's virtually. We've always had an approach of, of redundancy here at Dominion, but in general, it's still not anywhere to the level of the ideal two battery strings, two service cable trays, two everything. I think the biggest factor in that is always cost and space. Your battery strings, 130 volt set, it, it's not small. Telecom, you see it more, I think, because you have the 48 volt strings and you can get two sets of batteries in, in maybe the space that you'd get one 130 volt set of batteries. I, I think it's 50-50 for us. We do do a good bit of redundancy when it comes to once we come off of the batteries, dual trip coils on our breakers, protective relays are usually in a dual setting as well too. So if you would lose one side of your feed somehow that you have a secondary feed, but it's still all coming from one source of batteries. We have gotten to the point of redundant chargers in a lot of locations, but still it all comes back to one one battery string. And I think that's pretty common across the industry. We do have locations where we do redundant battery strings, but it's, it's very few and far between. I would say it's probably less than 5% of our total battery strings. You mentioned that you are in some locations uh, installing redundant chargers. Are they basically just a second SCR charger or are you taking a different approach to it? Typically, if we put a secondary charger in, it's one of the same. We'll use them in a load sharing capacity so they're both on all the time, but the one is there in case one were to fail. We also do it in locations where we need quicker recharge time. They may be there as a redundant standpoint as far as always keeping the battery system floating at the right voltage if one were to happen to fail. But then a lot of times when we go with redundant chargers, we also want to bring that station back up quicker if we needed to, if there was a total loss of AC power coming in. The one thing that always comes to mind, probably because I had the pleasure of changing out a wall-mounted charger a number of times, comes down to if you haven't got full redundancy, probably the most important factor comes into it then is the MTTR, the mean time to repair. If you have a charger failure, that you're then left with the battery on hopefully eight hours and you have to somehow get that charger replaced. There's some places I know where you simply couldn't put a second charger on the wall. There simply isn't enough space. Do you have a possible solution for that? All of our crews have a charger on standby in their offices. So if they were to get called out, they would be able to bring another charger with them. But yes, you, you're right. I mean, it, it they're cumbersome. A lot of them are very heavy depending on the current rating of the charger. So we also have battery trailers that are outfitted with 
um, chargers in them and, and a whole set of batteries. If we got into a, a bind and we strategically placed those throughout our system on standby. So if we had a station where a charger went down and the timing of getting a new charger out there or the replacement parts for that charger weren't readily available, then we can actually hitch up to a trailer, pull a trailer out there that has a 430 volt set of batteries in it, charger, everything we need. We can make parallel. We've standardized all of our control houses for our substations to have an external hookup for these chargers for both AC and DC. So we can hook the charger up, get the cooling system going in the, in the trailer itself and bring the trailer online in a matter of pretty much minutes by throwing some switches once we get it into the location. We've kind of set ourselves up in that regard. You know, the chargers, if they're going to fail, it's always at midnight on a cold day in, in the middle of winter. <laughs> so so you, you've got you, you've to be kind of prepared for that. And, and we've done, I guess, as best a job you can do to, to prepare yourself for that. The ideal way, though, is just to hopefully roll a charger out there. If I was guessing, we're well over 50% of our stations now that have redundant chargers in them, and we're pecking away at that. I think our goal is to have near 100% of their space for it available. The SCRs give us a lot. They're a lot more compact. We can maybe take one of the old-style chargers out and put two of those in in one location in, in almost the same footprint. We're migrating in, in a bunch of different directions. I'm interested to hear the use of the trailer. That sounds like the ideal solution because you can also use that trailer when you're about to do a discharge test, can't you? That's true. That's our the primary goal of our trailers. We capacity test every single battery string. We do all the maintenance top to bottom. It's been our number one belief that you only know what you have by capacity testing. The quick hookups on the control houses the redundant set of batteries in the trailer, chargers, everything. The primary reason years ago for us was always for capacity testing to make it easier and safer for our crews when they go out to do that, our technicians. Having them then as standby as well too, the win-win for us in that regard. And that was the whole point too on standardizing all the control houses with quick hookups where we can just roll the trailer up, have a DC and AC connection point right outside the control house, you know, we used to have to prop doors open and pull cables in and to run the capacity test. Now we could pull up. We have rated plugs for both AC and DC coming from the trailer into the control house. We hook up. We make parallel. We can isolate internally in the house and do all the testing that we need for capacity testing as well. There's no question about it. You are now providing a high level of redundancy in a number of uh, methods there. And you're also improving the safety aspect of it because the moment you start working on a battery uh, when it's live on a live station, you are putting yourself and everything else at risk. You clearly have taken that into account. I know that within the uh, utility industry, the SCR charger, like the type you're talking about, have remained the favorites. Within the telecom industry, modular chargers took over many years ago simply for the reason that it was much easier to replace a charger. I've often commented that the the old Geico app about, though it's so simple that a caveman could do it. I have been known to use the comment that uh, replacing a modular charger is so simple a salesman can do it, which doesn't always make me a most popular person at presentations. But have you considered looking at some of the more modern modular chargers? Uh, because that at least reduces it down to still one unit on the wall. We're in that process now of trying to move that. Our telecom group, has been using that equipment for years. We are moving in that direction as far as 
looking at the products that are out there and identifying them and, and, and putting them through the proper R&D. You know, the, the thing with, with anything, utilities are usually slow to make changes. And that's because we always want to know that we're putting a proven product out there and bringing the crews up to training on new devices. Our group that I'm, that I'm in, we're constantly looking at the cutting edge technology for Dominion. And then we do our due diligence on it. And then we propose new products to our engineering force. And then they'll slowly start to roll these products out in the substations. And we try to get feedback from every group, whether it's the substation electricians, the relay technicians, the, our equipment technicians, you know, we'll, we'll bring feedback back from each one of those groups. Having said that, most chargers that we put out there will go with the battery life and it's a 20 year battery. So we'll, we'll keep a charger out there. So change is slow because, you know, your turnover is not very fast on these, on these particular batteries. So if, if we're starting with a new product today to get the whole fleet changed out could take 20 years. <laughs> I understand that part of it. The thing I find interesting is that with respect to redundancy, uh, although I commented that I was surprised at the very early stages when I started visiting substations, I just didn't see that level of redundancy. Within the utility regulatory body, NERC, they've now become much more focused on achieving redundancy throughout the network. And in the latest version of TPL 001-5 release, They've actually identified the single charge or single battery as a single sort basically a, a single point of failure. And they are re- requiring that you take steps to eliminate it, either make it redundant or find another way to do it. How are you handling that? We're slowly adapting. Our control houses are set up to quickly make that change it's the space that becomes the the biggest issue for us so we've always had the dual trip coils the dual protection relays and they are always completely fed back to a single panel board that went but on on separate circuits within that panel board and then they go back to the to the battery system making the change for us wouldn't be a, a massive uh, undertaking as far as the, the wiring within the lo- within the control house. You know, we'd be able to pull one circuit out and move it into a, se- a separate panel board. The biggest issue for us over everything has been space. Most of our current control houses would not accept two battery strings. Um, so we've, we've started with putting standalone battery houses in our substations as well, too. So now these houses are just for the battery systems and we're pulling those out of the the control house and depending on um the level of the station i could see us in in certain ways if if we were regulated to do that that we would we would go in that avenue NERC is uh it's actually the the people on all the committees are actually from the utility industry so a lot of times they uh they recognize the challenges you would have isn't one of the uh, one of the ways that you can overcome the single battery is by monitoring? Where do you stand on that side? That's where we put a lot of our, our a lot of our eggs are in that basket here. All of our transmission level substations have monitoring installed in them already, and we're reaching out to critical distribution stations and our telecom systems. We we have 
if I had a guess, is somewhere north of 450 battery monitoring systems installed currently on our 130 volt systems and probably another 50 to 60 monitors installed on our telecom batteries. We're using that to be proactive instead of reactive when it comes to our battery systems and and the level of protection that we, you know, to make sure we have the level of protection at the substations that we always need to have. We keep up with all of our scheduled maintenance. We're doing above and beyond any of what the NERC standards are, are the PRC 005, everything. We, we go above and beyond on all that on ours. Um, we're, as you know, we're in Virginia, so we, we serve a lot of critical customers. So we need to make sure that we're, you know, we're, we're doing our best to, to serve our customers. It sounds as if you have worked through almost all the problems that could come from a lack of redundancy within the substations. Is there anything else you feel that you could be looking at from the power's perspective or, or something that the manufacturers and vendors of the power equipment that would help you achieve that objective? We're always, I guess, pushing the envelope on on newer technology. You know, we're using, along with battery monitoring, we use electrolyte level monitors. We're using ripple voltage monitors. We're trying to not only take what the, the bare minimum is, even on monitoring, and we expand on it. We're constantly doing R&D on new products and technology that are that are out there. Having products that can assist us with predicting any type of failures is a win for us. We're taking that data and then we we prove it over and over and over again to make sure that what we're what we're seeing in the field is really what we're expecting to see. We're always looking for that next opportunity to add to our toolbox as far as what we can do as far as being predictive on on any type of failure. Well, Dennis, I really have enjoyed this conversation. You've given us a lot of information about all the work you're doing within Dominion. Hopefully it might point the way for some other people that may well be struggling and haven't reached the level of experience that you guys have. Thank you very much indeed for uh, sitting in for us on this podcast. I look forward to seeing you sometime in the future now that COVID is a little bit more under control. All right. Take care, George. Thank you. Well, that's a wrap. Thanks again for joining us for the episode of DC Power Hour. We had a great time discussing the importance of redundancy in the DC power industry, and I don't know about you, but I learned a heck of a lot. Tune in to our next episode where we'll discuss a really timely topic in today's battery circles, the impact of electric vehicles on the future. Looking forward to that one. We hope you can join us next time. And in the meantime, if you have any questions for the Battery Blarney Duo or anything else you want us to discuss in next week's episode, please email us at info at eepowersolutions.com. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you then.